If you don't have that sense of belonging, it's painful. It's physically and mentally painful. Um, and I think it took me all these years, you know, I'm not 41, it took me all these years to finally realize that, you know, home is where I am, is where I anchor myself to be. And it's an emotional state rather than a physical state. Hey y'all, I'm Brian Pagan and this is episode 11 of Mindfolk, human creativity and mindful innovation in a podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Cynthia Taylor, journalist, copywriter, content strategist, screenwriter, and filmmaker. She and I have worked together on plays and digital products, and Cynthia is my writing mentor, as well as the editor of my first book, The Creative Empathy Field Guide. This is an episode about stories, identity, human connection, and what home really means. And like any great story, this conversation taught me some unexpected things about myself. I even get the tables turned on me at the end. So our curtain opens on Cynthia elucidating how she was able to create such a natural, organic relationship between the two main characters in her latest film, Clinch. Enjoy. I did set up the goal for myself to have a lot of improv in this film. That was also one of the reasons why I uh, also got Yuval in, because he's not really an actor. He does, uh, you know, fight choreography and that kind of things, and he'll be a stuntman for that, but he's not an actor. And so, yes, it was from the very beginning, I just wanted to set out a challenge to um, direct a film with improv and with non-actors. I mean, of course, I have Amelie, who is amazing uh, at what she does. And so she can always take a scene and uh, yeah, bring the scene to where I need it to be. So what we did is I wrote the script. I wrote like some dialogue in the script, um, but I told them not to learn the lines, but to just learn key things like key messages. Like I needed to mention this and this and this in the dialogue. And you start the scene at this point and you end the scene at this point. What happens in between, it's up to you. And so, um, so yes, that scene specifically when they are eating the noodles and watching fights and so on. I think that scene, I think I have like, I think we, we shot it for like almost half an hour from different angles. And every time they would start a new conversation and, uh, and sometimes I'll be like, Oh, I would just, you know, would always continue filming. Cause that's one thing. Like I always saw them like, don't leave character, just stay in character. Even if I'm talking to you, just stay there because it's just also moments when, if I'm talking to an actor, the camera might capture a nice listening shot of, of the character. And, um, and so I would just come in and just throw some things like, uh, can you ask him this again? Or can you, can you just talk about something different and so on? So, but yeah, it was all them. Yeah. It's amazing. That was my favorite scene. I think was that one where they're sitting, watching the fights and eating noodles together. Yeah. There was such beautiful chemistry between the two of them. I love that scene too. I think also also on paper, I, it was one of my favorite scenes. I think Amelie, when she first read that script, I think she also loved that scene. And there were, of course, variations to the scene. But I think it's the first moment in that film that we see this character putting her guard down a bit and allowing herself to be a bit more, not even vulnerable, but just to be a bit happy. And, uh, and, and yeah, and I think it's just a beautiful scene in that sense. Yeah. What was the biggest, let's say difference or the biggest thing that you had to learn going from writing and directing something that's totally scripted to writing and directing what you mentioned now as being 
more improv? Well, I think at the same time that I want to give space for every single member of, of the crew and the cast to to give their input and, and to bring themselves into the project. I do give that space. At the same time, I have a very clear vision. I know exactly what I want to get out of things. Um, uh, and um, in film, in theater is different. In theater, I have the time to build it up so I can go into it like, mm, I don't know, we'll see. But in film, because time is a luxury, you really need to know. Um, and it's funny because I've had conversations with Amélie Onzon about uh, the way I direct. And she says, oh, you're so different from other directors because you know exactly, you're so precise in what you want. Um, but at the same time, I give them also space, you know, like um, uh, even with my creative team, I tell them, okay, this is my vision. This is the idea that I have. Uh, and I know that a lot of people feel like, oh, the, the director already knows we just execute it, but I don't like executors. I like, and I think it comes from theater where you just build things together. I really like that involvement of everyone in my crew. So when I talk to uh, potential crew members, I immediately want to hear them already coming up with ideas and thinking about, oh, maybe we can go there. Maybe we can try this. Of course, in line with the vision, not something completely different. I mean, if they go a completely different direction, then they're not the right um, <laughs> crew member for, the, for that particular project. But just, um, but yeah, I, I do give that freedom within, you know, the, the, the vision that I want. So to me, what's important is that we all are in tune with the vision. And then from there on, we build on each other's strengths and each other's ideas. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, the script is just a base. Um, it's just one, one step into a larger process. And, you know, the story that it's, that this, the story that I even started out thinking is no longer the story of the script. There are so many versions of that script then. And um, what you shoot is a different version. And what you go, when you go into post is a completely different version. We have had like six versions of the edit of this film. So you're always recreating. What was the biggest challenge in working this way? Uh, well, I, I can only talk about my own challenge, of course. And to me, it was the fact that there's so many options. <laughs> if I mean, if I just have executors in it, they'll just do exactly what I say first. Mm -hmm. um, if I have people who think with me, they will be like, oh, you can do that. Uh, but I just got an idea. We can also do that. And I'm like, oh, that also sounds cool. But is it is it in line with what we're doing and so on? And and so, yeah, if I have like lots of options, it's like, a, no, a child in a, in a, how do you call it? In a candy <laughs> shop. Candy store. <laughs> you just want to have everything, right? And so it's so hard to then make a choice because um, everything is beautiful. Everything is amazing. You didn't ask that, but I'm just going to say it. For this film, the way I tackle that... <laughs> was to make sure and actually it's with every with every every project that I do I always come back to what is what is the film about who is talking whose story is this and it's her story so everything about this film is done through her it's about her so the, the color is about the way she sees the world the music is about the way she communicates and her emotions um uh, the poster that thing behind me, it really is about, you know, it's, it's teared. It's like this idea of a teared poster, which it really is about her soul. Um, and, uh, and this, this, this was not even my idea. It was uh, Martin who did a, who did a poster. He came up with it after we spoke about it. And I told him, I wanted to come from her, from within her. 
And, uh, and then he was like, okay. And he came up with this idea. I was like, yes, exactly. So this is what I mean. This is a good example of collaboration where I give a vision and then I, but at the same time do give the space for those who are good at their craft much better than I am to explore and come back to me with something that, I mean, I probably would never have arrived here, you know, same thing. I would not uh, ever have arrived at the music that Nikolai composed or the sound design that Megan uh, designed. (laughs) (laughs) So just, just to shift gears slightly, um, I'm curious about your, some of your other films, especially your hair is cute. This is a film Uh, we've spoken about before. How, why did you make your hair is cute? Yeah. Why? Uh, It's funny because sometimes you only get the right answers at a later stage. And and I didn't realize why I was making Your Hair is Cute. And Your Hair is Cute, you know, is a monologue about, um, you know, the subtleties of everyday racism. And it's based on on an episode that happened to me. So um, uh, I'm at the airport and um, this... American lady in her 50s, 60s, maybe. Uh, she's just, she's sitting in quite far from me. And I get up to leave and she just calls me from across the room. It's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And I'm like, okay, I just, I thought, what did I do wrong? And I just look at the lady and she's like, your hair is cute. And she just continues eating her panini or whatever she was doing. And I was like, okay. Thank you. So it was a very awkward moment to me, but it was not the first time that that happened. Not in this um, awkward manner, but uh, throughout my life, I constantly was um, told, you know, how my hair was kinky and cutie and this and that, or how my skin tone was different. And, uh, uh, and, and I guess that was kind of almost like, you know, a last drop or I, I, I need to say something about this. Um, and the whole thing was, I mean, I, I grew up uh, a mixed race and I grew up in very white environments um, where not only I was told constantly how different I was from everyone else. Um, I was born in Angola. My parents are Angolan and there is a difference in culture, even though Angola used to be part of Portugal. I was colonized by Portugal where I grew up. Um, there was still a difference of culture. And so, you know, I, there were things about Portuguese culture that I wasn't aware of, even though I had been living there since I was two and a half years old, uh, because my parents weren't aware of the, aware of that. And so, you know, um, so I was always told very specifically how different I was from everyone else. And when you're a child, you just want to belong. You don't want to be different. Now I want to be different, but when you're a child, (laughs) right? you just want to be exactly like anyone else. And, um, and it's quite sad in a way when I think back, you know, I remember uh, crying myself to sleep, uh, wishing, you know, that I was blonde with blue eyes, because if I was blonde with blue eyes, I would be treated normally. Maybe I would have more friends. Maybe people would not, uh, you know, refuse to play with me and so on. And, um, and so that stays with you and you don't realize how deep it is in you. And sometimes it just, you know, there's a little trigger. And I think, that comment from that lady at that point in my life um, was a trigger. The whole idea of, well, and I used your hair is cute also because of the political connotations that African hair has. 
you know, where you see, you've seen throughout the years, you know, especially um, uh, black women being forced to straighten their hair using relaxers that are just so damaging to one's health. You know, I've countless of stories in my family of women who burned their scalp trying to relax their hair because that's how you should do. You should have straight hair, not, you know, curly hair. That's kinky. You know, that's exotic. Even think about the words that are used in shampoo bottles, uh, talking about taming your kinky hair. Taming? Then you do that with wild beasts. You don't do that to hair and to people. And uh, to me, it's like I did this film for white people, actually. It was because black people know. And it was not until I made the film that I realized that it was a far more universal feeling. You know, when Deborah, the actress who does the film, when she read the monologue, she started crying, saying, well, this is exactly what I feel. This is exactly what I mean. And for the first time, I realized, like, oh, hang on. Indeed, I am not the problem. It's the world is the problem. I am not. How did that feel for you, seeing her cry, reading your words? Uh, well, I think actually seeing someone cry over something that I cry too, it, um, it just brings, you know, in a, in a wicked way, some comfort because it's, um, I'm not alone in this and, um, there's a, re okay, now I have a reason to make this film because I also want to approach those young girls who are, who are now crying in bed, that they want to be blonde and blue eyes. No, it's no, you shouldn't. You don't have to, because the problem is not in you. It's in them and the rest of the world who still needs to understand that it's that what you, who you are, it's perfectly beautiful. So yeah, I actually, I, I even have at the end of the film, something like this, to, to all the girls in the world, you are beautiful. I guess it was me talking to little Cynthia. <laughs> Why do you create art? I don't know, to be honest. I, I just need means to express myself, I suppose. You know, I, I started out as a journalist and I really thought that I had become a journalist because I just wanted to make the world a better place and blah, blah, blah. But I found myself, um, and bear in mind, when I, when I joined journalism school, I thought I would become a war reporter. And uh, I never did that. And I never felt the need to do that because once I started working in journalism, uh, still in my studies, I realized that it were the small stories that I enjoyed telling the most, just uh, the little quirkiness or, you know, the little inspiring stories, everyday things, no big stuff. And I still do. And I still do. And I, so it was always about story. Even when I was uh, a young girl and the moment I started talking, I started telling stories and I would just tell stories to everyone. So it was always about story, I guess. And I suppose that the whole point is just to, you know, as it was when I was a kid was to, to feel a bit less lonely, um, that I was part of something. And I guess that is still the case today is just, mm. just like with your hair is cute was about, you know, I, I, I expressed something that I felt and I felt less lonely because I found a bit of my tribe. Oh, there are other people like me in the world. And I still do the same with every project that I do, maybe in film, maybe in theater, still journalism. And it's just, yeah, telling short stories, sharing them, trying to understand, you know, our humanity and feeling less lonely. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. No, I mean, that's, yeah, I, 
I, cu- I couldn't uh, think of a, of a, of a greater purpose yeah. to create art than to bring people together. I mean, it's, it's uh, wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I also teach, uh, I teach uh, documentary narratives and ethics uh, at SAE. And I love that role. I love that role of being able to steer people into the direction they want to go. One of the things that I always loved about journalism was listening to people's stories. And that's what I also do with these students. You know, I, I listen to their stories and, and then I just help them share them. I'm just wondering, is there maybe one moment that inspired you particularly? No, it's, um, it's not one moment. It's not just one person. It's the full package. You know, it's every, every year there's always someone there that just surprises me. Someone who teaches me something new and not necessarily about design, but just a a new perspective about life. Um, so that's, that's amazing. I'm also very curious. I'm someone who always needs to learn and I'm always looking out for different ideas about the world and life and, you know, and challenges to my own conceptions. Um, so yeah, in that sense, it's amazing to always, you know, be faced with different people who have different perspectives and can challenge you. What's the most surprising of those lessons? I'm not, I wouldn't say it's surprising. It's almost like a confirmation because I'm, I work with people from all over the world, uh, with different age groups and so on. And it's just this confirmation that in the end, we're just all the same. So many similarities. And, and this is not, not, not what I'm going to say has nothing to do with, with the masters, but just to give a, a very clear example, I talk about all my, you know, uh, issues growing up in a white world and the people who understand me the most are people who sort of look like me and who have the same experience, but in different parts of the world. And there's two people here in the Netherlands that, you know, one, one was born here in the Netherlands and the other one was born in Texas. And uh, I was born in Angola and grew up in Portugal. And the three of us share the exact same experience, uh, the exact same fears, insecurities, which are very different from darker skin people, no, really black people. We are, we're, we're somewhere in the, in the middle. And, um, and I think just being in contact with, with so many different people, even though sometimes we have different ideas, you know, it just reinforces this whole idea that we are pretty much the same, you know, just a passport or a different year that you were born in. But yeah, we don't, yeah, we're kind of like the same, the same, uh, how do you say, um, tissue. Cut from the same cloth, as it were. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked now a little bit about this concept of belonging. As a child, you only want to belong, and that's your your biggest priority. You you just want to feel like you're part of something. Yeah. And you've spoken now about a couple of examples of you connecting with other people through your work. Yeah. In the sense that you've connected with them in this feeling of otherness, in a way that mixed-race people feel. And I'm, I'm wondering... Um, I'm, I'm assuming here because I, my, myself am mixed race as well. And maybe I'm projecting a little bit of my experience on you, which I don't want to do, but basically, <laughs> yeah. but like for, for me, like it, I don't feel, cause I'm also like a bit multinational or whatever. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't feel white, but I also don't feel Puerto Rican. Yeah. Like my family's from Puerto Rico. I don't feel like I'm from, I was born in Puerto Rico, but I didn't grow up there. So I don't speak Spanish and I don't have a lot of the culture and I 
I feel a lot of insecurity and shame around this, uh-huh. but also I don't feel totally American. I also don't feel Dutch, even though, you know, I've lived in the Netherlands already for almost 20 years now. Um, and for me, I, I feel the most connected with people like you who are almost the outsiders, like as if we, the outsiders is our tribe. And I'm, I'm yeah. wondering what, what, what that sort of feels like for you. It's exactly the same. It's exactly mm. the same. I mean, I've always felt a bit weird about people when people would talk, uh, people who are, for example, people who are here uh, in the Netherlands and they would say, oh, I'm going to go this weekend back home, meaning that they were from another country and they would go back to the country for for the weekend. And Mm. this whole concept of home as a geographical place, it's so foreign to me because it's like, where is home? I don't have like you know, that feeling of belonging to a country, (laughs) to a nation. I don't have that. And, um, I mean, I I will say like, you know, people always say, oh, for which uh, football, um, as in soccer, uh, which one do you support? Uh, Yeah, I will go for the Portuguese and I will, I will have something, you know, in my chest if I hear the Portuguese anthem. I mean, I did live there for 24 years or so. So it's, still, you know, part of me, I, but it's not a country that I, that I really call home. I took a lot of its culture. I have wonderful friends and family there, but it's not home. There was a reason why I left the country as well, because I didn't feel at home. And, and now even less, (laughs) because I've also grown so much as a person outside the country. Every time I go back to the country, I'm like, Oh, I really don't belong here. Um, and and it's not that I it's not that I belong to the Netherlands. I'm definitely not Dutch either. Um, but uh, at least here, it's very clear that I'm a foreigner. <laughs> it's very clear that I am not from here, right? Well, in Portugal, in Portugal, they gave me the passport, and still they call me different. You're not really Portuguese, are you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, you know that's the whole question: Where are you really from? That kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I do find myself really, you know more connected to, to those people than, I mean, I'm exactly like you. I, I go to the black community and I feel like a fraud. I totally feel like a fraud because it's, um, it's also, I feel like a fraud and I feel guilt because I do, I do have, I mean, I have black blood. I acknowledge Mm. my black (laughs) blood, but I was never, put down because of it. I mean, yeah, there was little things about comments on my skin tone or my hair, but because I had a white father and a white family that were, you know, that were in, in positions that could take me, you know, that I was given good education. I was, as far as I'm aware, I was never denied a job because, you know, uh, of my, of my skin tone. So I'm so privileged. I am so privileged. Despite the little pains that have caused me throughout the years, I am super privileged in comparison to so many other people. Um, and in the black community, you see that some people just, you know, um, and I going to black communities in Portugal was amazing how everyone spoke this slang and they, they, you know people talked about food that was I have never heard of that food <laughs> I've never tried that food even and because my parents were they really made sure that you know I would try to fit in in the Portuguese society as much as possible so I do have some influences but they didn't 
they didn't expose me to my Angolan roots that much. And I, so I always felt like a bit of a fraud, uh, even like talking about blackness and so on. I feel like, is it really my place <laughs> to do so? Uh, but I know I walk into a party full of white people and I know that I will be noticed. I know people will look at me differently and I see the eyes, I see the looks, but I'm also, I mean, if I go to the, to a black people's party, it's going to be the same. Yeah. It's a different thing though, but it's still, it's like, um, I don't belong anywhere. Yeah. Do you notice that when you walk around outside, the looks? Oh, uh, well, depends on where you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah. It depends on where you are and which part of the world you are with, and then in, in which town or yeah, I do. I do. There's something that I also, um, I don't know if you have that, but I've spoken to other uh, black people and that, and that is something that then I'm seen as black is you, you know, in a white environment, if someone of color of mixed, um, walks in, we exchange looks as in, I see you, you got your <laughs> back. And there's something that happens and I, and I cannot explain what it is. It's just like, I see you, I appreciate you. You're good. Mm. Because we, we know that we are the only ones that we're, we're different. We know we're different. It's not our world per se. In that huh. sense, if you understand what I mean, I do. And there, you feel a connection of, yeah, we're not really white. It doesn't matter what you are, we're not really white. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you have the same kind of exchange with a white person no. at a black party? No, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no. That, I don't think even white people know about the look. <laughs> no. <laughs> it might be filling out secrets here <laughs> i know right yeah, <laughs> probably shouldn't yeah. publish this <laughs> and, it's, and i thought it was something I, I really thought it was something in me like well maybe it's me you know again one of those things and then i started talking to other people like does this happen to you do you do you like share look and everyone kept saying yes i do yes i yeah. do if you're not the default <laughs> you kind of need support if you're not the default i think this is a really interesting and i think that's that's kind of the point hmm Shit, I, I, there's a lot, I have a lot to think about now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we are debunking the whole meaning of life now. But yeah, I, I think belonging, it's crucial. I mean, um, Brené Brown talks about that a lot. Sense uh, of belonging. And I love Brené Brown. Brené Brown literally saved my life. So you know how much I love her. We've spoken about it as well. Yeah. And, um, and, it's, uh, and I think if you don't have that sense of belonging... Um, it's painful. It's physically and mentally painful. Um, and I think it took me all these years, you know, I'm not 41. It took me all these years to finally realize that you no know, home is where I am is where I anchor myself to be. And it's an emotional state rather than a physical state. And, uh, and so I, I choose home now. I choose home by choosing who my family is. My extended family is we live in a world that is just full of categories and boxes that you must fill in and you must obey to, you know, and if you don't, you're just immediately out, you know, and, and that could be your gender, your skin color, but it could also just be the way you think, you know, the way, um, you, you face the world. And if, if it's not immediately one of those categories, you're immediately out, right? And by being immediately out again, you are different from anyone else and you don't belong. I'm wondering if there's any of this in clinch at all. I think it's present throughout. I think who I am as a person just 
immediately translates in, in my artistic work. We're talking about this woman who is trying to figure out a way back to herself. You know, she's been through trauma, a traumatic event, um, and she's fighting to try to get back to who she was before that. But what she needs to realize is that there's no going back. There's only moving forward. And so she needs to take that traumatic event, wrap it around, and use it as a propeller to move her forward and accept that that event happened. And uh, it doesn't define her as a person, but it now is part of her life story. This is who you are now. You've been touched. You've been changed. It's okay. And I think that's also part of belonging, that acceptance of who you are and what happened to you, you know? What's your biggest challenge right now? There were times that I was my biggest challenge. My lack of confidence in me was my biggest challenge, but that's not the case now. And I've also, uh, I think you need time to mature uh, your voice as an artist and to understand what you want to say. And I've done that. I know where I want to go. I know the stories I want to tell. It's just a matter of having time to write them down and to make them happen. How did you do that? It's not uh, the Lord of the Rings or the Lord of the artist's voice. It's, it's, just, <laughs> it's just something that happens naturally and you need to explore. And, and I think you need to be open mm. to explore and um, to even be vulnerable. So, yeah, it was all about really going back to analyzing patterns. And, and you see, there's uh, something in psychology called transitional analysis. Mm. It's funny because it, it has a very mm-hmm. film and theater language because <laughs> they talk about scripts. And they say that basically um, uh, in life, we, we make scripts. And uh, these scripts are based on the, these early decisions that we make. That's why you see often, for example, it's a very basic example, but children who are exposed to violence they will often then associate themselves in a relationship which has that violence. So if a child saw domestic violence against the mother, if that child is a woman, the likelihood of this woman finding a partner who is as violent towards her is quite high in comparison to children who were not exposed to that same violence. And and that violence will, you know, will define the way this person sees, sees themselves, you know? Um, and I say violence, it's an extreme example, but there are other examples, of course, but and they'll say that, uh, oh, well, I'm, I'm bad, or I am, am good and the world is bad, or I deserve this because I'm not worthy oh, enough. Wow. And so everything you do is to just uh, prove, your, prove that script right. So you will set out yourself to very high standards, mm-hmm. so you fail. And because you fail, it just proves, you see, I'm not good enough. (laughs) (laughs) Those little patterns. And, um, and if you start analyzing yourself, you know, and you do the work, yeah, you uncover those. And then it's the moment, you know, them, it's about being alert and trying to overcome that. Oh, we went very deep now. Love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming with me on this journey. It's fantastic. I got to tell you, when you said the word fraud earlier, mm. I it was like you punched me right in the in the gut, you know? Like I I really felt it in my chest here and I almost I almost cried because you articulated something that I've been feeling 
like a, like a tip of my tongue basically for my entire life. And I never mm-hmm. broke it down in the way that you did talking about feeling like a fraud mm-hmm. and feeling guilty about misappropriating this culture. Like I'm not worthy of this. I can't, you know, you also take though that feeling of fraud to your work. I, yeah, I think so. I, I can tell from my, from myself that I am quite obsessed, at least on a subconscious level, about how people think of my work and what people think. And if people praise my work, then I feel good about myself. Like I've earned the right to feel worthy, mm-hmm. but only temporarily, of course, because then the next time yeah. I have to do it all over again. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's incredibly unhealthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's incredibly unhealthy, but it is a pattern. And, and I, I mean, I, I try to fight it against it, but I also have the same. And I do find this a lot along indeed people who have a hard time with understanding where they belong and with people who are from uh, multiple uh, cultures or ethnicities. I had so many issues even with claiming to be an artist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what is an artist <laughs> exactly? How do you claim that word for yourself? You know, um, do I deserve to be called an artist and to call myself an artist? What have I contributed to the art world to deserve such honor of being called an artist? You know, I have had such difficulties with that word. Um, and now I say it, but I, there's still a part of me that feels a bit like, mm, a bit cringy. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I didn't go to art school. I don't hang out with the cool art arts people and you know um you know there's yeah there's a bunch of ideas of what artists do and their lifestyle that i don't have and i don't comply with and it's like okay again an outsider you see i keep on <laughs> maybe this part of my i just keep on putting myself into positions where i remain an outsider so oh, i love it thank you so much cynthia thank you <laughs> I always love learning and growing with you, Cynthia. Thank you so much. And for y'all listening, what did Cynthia's stories show you about yourself? Let me know with an email or voice message via mindfolkpod.com or get in touch on Twitter and Instagram at mindfolkpod. Keep choosing love, dear one. <laughs>